I live in a place where the nuts hunt the squirrels. In a place where the nuts hunt the squirrels, haha. It's a beautiful spot where I don't think a lot. And mostly I don't think of girls like you, hoo-ha. I don't think of girls like you. When I think of the traffic and horns and lights that flash and signs that blink and say don't walk and subways that roar and brakes that screech and noisy men drilling holes in the streets. I'm mad for this place where the nuts hunt the squirrels, where the people all smile while they play, ha-ha. And I spend all my time skipping rocks at the ducks, and I don't think of girls like you, hoo-ha. I don't think of girls like you. You drove me to this, and you know that you did. To the place where the nuts hunt the squirrels, ha-ha. But I couldn't care less, because my life was a mess. So who needs the human race, ha-ha. I don't need the human race. I don't have any use for girls like you who tell me what I should say and do and how I should cut my hair and shave my shoes and shine my face and live like a nut in the human race. So I'm mad for this place where the nuts hunt the squirrels and it's here I shall always remain. Ha <laughs> ha. It's here I shall always remain. But there's just one complaint I've had so far. They're trying to drive me sane. <laughs> They're trying to drive me sane. Oh, they're trying to drive me sane. Ha-ha. They're trying to drive me sane. Hee-hee. <laughs> they're trying to drive me sane. Oh, they're trying to drive me sane. Ha-ha. They're trying to drive me sane. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. You'll also find transcripts of this shortly up on alanwattsentinel.eu. It is October the 11th, 2007. Welcome to the worldwide police state, because that's what we're living in. And we shouldn't be all shocked. We should really take this in a stride, because we've been living in this system, a police state really, for our whole lives. It's just that it's more overt now, it's more out in the open. We fail to realize the histories that led up to where we are today, mainly because it's not taught anymore, at least in the, the lower schools. It's carefully kept for the old granite Ivy League type universities where those technocrats, those help, who help rule society, those who help the elite and work for the elite, are educated. That's where they're taught the real histories, at least the part that they have to know, which is the control of the mind and the mass mind at that. Sociology, psychology, and all the variations of it, because there, there are select divisions of psychology for different purposes, and this is well understood, well observed, well documented, and Joe Public is supposed to simply remain a child forever, be educated, be indoctrinated, play his whole life, work and play, and pay for his funeral uh, before he dies, of course, and, um, and be a good citizen, consume and produce don't make waves. That's the whole point of a well-behaved 
or beehived society. In the 1800s, after Darwin had been put out front to promote the old inner high Masonic idea of evolution, borrowed from Hinduism, from the old slimy swamp, and evolving upwards through many lifetimes into this select sect of elitists, the same bunch that Plato was referring to when he talked about how his own aristocratic brotherhood understood sciences, the sciences of that time. And he said it's because, well, we've lived before, haven't we? Another idea they'd borrowed from one of the oldest religions, maybe the oldest religion in the known world, at least known to us, because there have been many other ages before this one, before the Ice Ages, before the previous warming ages between the Ice Ages, and on and on it goes. We don't know how old humankind really is. And all the the um, the fake hunts they have for Lucy and the common mother and all this stuff, uh, the Piltdown Man and all that kind of thing, uh, all these fakes that they've put out there and trained the public to believe in simply don't hold up when they're analysed, as indeed the Piltdown Man was, at least the skull was, and it was found to be half pig and half human, stuck together and put in a museum on display for years and taught as fact in school. Well, we all have to believe in evolution so that we can believe there are special types, more superior types that fits in with the Darwinian theory of selective breeding. Uh, those who breed wisely and pick their mates have the better, stronger offspring, the more cunning, the more intelligent, etc. And this whole movement led from that to theosophy. Even Blavatsky adopted it because she was told to. She was only a front as well, good actress though. And um, we find it went all the way into the backing of the Soviet system, the Soviet man, uh, the new Soviet man they were going to create. It was all conditioned reflexes and perfected. Uh, all superstition would be drummed out of them. They would be products of the state, well-behaved, efficient workers. We find the same thing in Nazi Germany because Germany was a leading proponent for for the Pavlovian techniques. Now that they agreed that God was dead, accepting Nietzsche, then man was just a higher animal. And like all higher animals, he could be trained and reconditioned and made to be what the elite wanted them to be. Now, after saying that, I'm not saying I totally disagree with it, because, you see, they have trained most people into being what they want them to be, good producers and consumers, but certainly not thinkers and certainly not individuals. Uh, That is why the top schools for universal peace, which are also owned by the elite, they've always said that they'd have to eradicate individuality amongst the populace because the individual could be aberrant, they could never predict what they're going to do next, and you'd have unforeseen consequences to their actions. Therefore, individuality had to go. In its place was to come, not communism, because that would be too blatant, so they called it commutarianism, good citizens in your neighborhood, which would eventually become little habitat areas with committees running your lives and deciding what you do and what colors to paint your house 
and how many cars to have outside your door and the fact that you couldn't change your oil in your own driveway. That kind of stuff. Uh, that was all borrowed from the Soviet system. They just don't call it communism here. It's called communitarianism and good citizenry. So change the terminology, promote it under a goody, goody, goody thing, goody two-shoes, and people accept it quite docilely. That's the system we live in. Now, the study of psychology, mass psychology, uh, is empirical. You can test it. You can, And these tests have been done in all countries and compared with each other. The same test situations uh, with cameras and streets and cameras and schools and cameras everywhere. And people react the same way generally to the same problems and they try to find the same solutions. And they can also be guided by experts who understand this into conclusions. Uh, that's what television is for. That's what radio is for. In fact, that's what all media is for, is to give you what should be your conclusions, the, the approved conclusions given to you by the elite. They don't wanting, want you thinking too deeply about things, but it's also to create short-term memory. They realized a long, long time ago Centuries ago, in fact, when they did the Punch and Judy shows, the old travelling shows with the, the little booth where the puppeteer would have the two or three main characters, and they realised that they could not hold the, the, the crowd's attention, especially the young, for too long if they went into long diatribes or drama. Therefore, they had to shorten it, and they found even then in the puppeteering industry that three seconds per actual view without movement was as long as children would, would watch. Therefore, that went into the cartoon industry. And we'll see now if a child walks, uh, looks away from the television during a particular scene for more than two or three seconds, they lose the thread of the story. Therefore, they're, they're in rapt attention, they're hypnotized by it, they're, they're glued to it, and the parents can talk to them and they don't respond or they'll miss the thread of the story. All psychology, and it's used on a world scale, this is known by some countries that haven't joined in this new world order. It's known by those in the Middle East. It's known by large segments in India, where they even had a national day where they threw out the television sets that had been brought in uh, at cost price, and they realized right away that the TV was meant to change and then dominate your culture. There's one thing about those that plan the world and the type of world they've wanted to come into being, they never give up. And so when something fails, they always have plan B, C or D, often all working together at the same time hoping that one or the other or two or all will take off. Therefore, we find in places like India, for instance, and even in Africa, the youth go for the cell phone. They make them really, really cheap, give them cheap deals, almost give them away to get them hooked on on this, because with that they can also download their, their various kinds of westernized music and all the other little jingles that come along with it. And that's something I'm going to talk about tonight. Aldo Huxley, a prominent leader, at least in the British world, 
from the 1930s onwards, in the field of behaviorism, he worked with the Tavistock Institute, one of the top experimental bases for physical manipulation by the insertion of 30-gauge stainless steel wire in the brains of people where they could manipulate them uh, remotely or even wired at that time before remotes, but they used remotes as well uh, shortly afterwards. And he was a, he was an observer to these experiments. So that got him really excited that they could control human behavior. And he always said that they did use it on mental patients, patients who were psychotic and so lessened the impact of what they were actually doing on, on the people who heard it. What's well, for the betterment of humanity. It's for poor souls that can't take care of themselves and it'll stop their, their aberrant behavior, their self-destructive behavior. That's what I'm talking about. They always couch it under the guise of helping or keeping you safe or something like that, you see. Why change the techniques and formulas when they work on most people? But in reality, they were, they, they were putting electrodes, not in just in chimpanzees and monkeys' brains, they were putting them into the brains of humans. This eventually was to lead up with interfacing to computer, and they were doing that way back, way back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And then eventually they did do test runs with hooking people up. Uh, they called them volunteer prisoners, lifers in Sweden, and that's been published in the, in the newspapers and interfacing with them with the computer. So Huxley was a big player. He also worked for MI5 and 6, as did most of the big authors of the day because the culture industry was completely controlled and owned by the elite. They never allow anything, especially to do with any kind of information, to go out by itself. That's why you have publishing industries and publication houses We find that George Orwell, when he tried to publish Animal Farm and 1984, couldn't get them published, even though he had contracts with the major publication houses in England and abroad. The reason being that being groomed for a top socialist leader, as he was, from university onwards and from the right background, from a, an upper-middle-class family, of bureaucrats, lifers, intergenerational bureaucrats. He turned against them and tried to expose what they're really all about. And suddenly he found out the publication houses were not there to get your books out, they were there to decide which books would be put out there. And so eventually he had to find another, another little publication house to get those books out. Perhaps it's good for the world that he did manage it, although today most people don't really care. They're too far gone. They like their servitude, just like the characters we find in Huxley's Brave New World like their existence. You can't make them back out of it when they enjoy the existence they have, this prepared, created existence. You can't make people change. Many will like it. Many, many people love their servitude as long as they can play with their favorite games or, or porn or whatever is out there for them to grab all the authorized things. It keeps them safe. 
It keeps them from thinking for themselves and it certainly keeps them from participating in the destiny or the future of the world. That's exactly what the elite want. A selfish, hedonistic, narcissistic population. Now, Aldo Huxley, apart from writing books that implant the ideas of the possibility of things to come, predictive programming through story form, familiarizing you with the idea, that's all important. And that's the main reason for these books that they put out. You find all, so see, all these top authors belonged to the intelligence agencies of culture, creation and the culture industry. Very important thing, same in the USA and elsewhere in the European countries. But Huxley also gave lectures, as I say, to the Ivy League universities, the Granite Stone universities, as they call them sometimes in Britain, as opposed to the Red Brick universities for the working class. And Huxley at least put out a book. I'm sure most of them were ghostwritten. They're too busy running around the world giving talks to write their books, and nothing has really changed in that department. Same with Al Gore's uh, books. They're ghostwritten by professionals for them. They just have to appear on the cover. But Huxley got a book out called Brave New World Revisited. And this is the non-fiction version of Brave New World, where he goes through all of the ideas in Brave New World and explains how they could be made to happen. And he shows you that they could be made to happen by comparing them with the psychological industries, the advertising industries and educational industries that already existed. He was showing you that this was already thought out, already thought out well in advance. He didn't come up with these ideas. These were all studies that had been done long before he was born into his very lucrative and important family. He's talking about symbols here. Now, symbols are all around you. You've grown up in a world of symbols. Symbols comprise a language, a language that the subconscious understands. And on page 85 of Brave New World Revisited, this is what... Aldo Huxley has to say. Sometimes the symbols take effect by being disproportionately impressive, haunting and fascinating in their own right. Of this are the rites and pomps of religion. These beauties of holiness strengthen faith where it already exists and, where there is no faith, contribute to conversion. Appealing as they do, only to the aesthetic sense, the feeling sense, in other words, feelings, they guarantee not, neither the truth nor the ethical value of the doctrines with which they have been quite arbitrarily associated. As a matter of plain historical fact, the beauties of holiness have often been matched and indeed surpassed by the beauties of unholiness. Under Hitler, for example, the yearly Nuremberg rallies were masterpieces of ritual and theatrical art. Now he quotes a fellow here. I had spent six years in St. Petersburg 
before the war in the best days of the old Russian ballet, writes Sir Neville Henderson, the British ambassador to Hitler's Germany. But for grandiose beauty, I have never seen any ballet to compare with the Nuremberg Rally. One thinks of Keats, beauty is truth, truth is beauty. Alas, the identity exists only on some ultimate supramundane level. On the levels of politics and theology, beauty is perfectly compatible with nonsense and tyranny. Which is very fortunate, for if beauty were incompatible with nonsense and tyranny, there would be precious little art in the world. And that's so true, because most art, go through the museums, the art museums, are all but battleships, the old frigates and cannons, and or battle scenes of, of slaughter on battlefields and glory. You know, they gloried in gory in those days, and they still do to an extent. That's how you keep the military going. And that's also what the the artists worked for. They worked for the big people who ran the wars and the commerce. And the commerce always goes hand in glove with wars. And they would pay the artists for their paintings and tell them what they wanted. So if you wanted to work and, and eat, you did what you were told and gave them what they wanted. And you see the Dying Gaul, I think, the Dying Gaul statue is in, the sculpture is in the Vatican. The Vatican owns a, a tremendous artworks, incredible artworks from ancient times to modern. The masterpieces of painting, sculpture and architecture were produced as religious or political propaganda for the greater glory of a god, a government or a priesthood. But most kings and priests have been despotic and all religions have been riddled with superstition. Genius has been the servant of tyranny, and art has advertised the merits of the local cult. Time, as it passes, separates the good art from the bad metaphysics. Can we learn to make this separation not after the event, but while it is actually making place or taking place? That is the question. In commercial propaganda, the principle of the disproportionately fascinating symbol is clearly understood. Every propagandist has his art department, and attempts are constantly being made at be to beautify the billboards with striking posters, the advertising pages of magazines with lively drawings and photographs. There are no masterpieces, for masterpieces appeal only to a limited audience and the commercial propagandist is out to captivate the majority. For him, the ideal is a moderate excellence. Those who like this not too good, but sufficiently striking art, may be expected to like the products with which it has been associated and for which it symbolically stands. He's talking about the advertising industry. Now remember that that's what, in the impact of science on society, Lord Bertrand Russell talked about, he said we must bring in the big advertising agencies into helping to run the minds of the people. Another disproportionately fascinating symbol is the singing commercial. Singing commercials are a recent invention. Now that was written a long time ago. Now they're commonplace. But the singing theological and the singing devotional, the hymn and the psalm, 
are as old as religion itself. You see where they took it from? Why change it when it works? Repetition and repetition. It works very, very well, especially when you attach an emotion with it. It's a deeper impact. It stays in the mind. Singing militaries or marching songs are coeval with war, and singing patriotics, the precursors of our national anthems, and that's true enough, that's where the national anthems come from, were doubtless used to promote group solidarity, to emphasize the distinction between us and them by the wandering bands of Paleolithic hunters and food gatherers, because he believes in evolution, you see. To most people, music is intrinsically attractive. Moreover, melodies tend to ingrain themselves in the listener's mind. And I remember this very, very carefully because I've talked before about music and how it's one of the muses. If you understand the muses, what the muses are in the Greek mythologies, you'll understand how you control the mind. There's the exoteric and the esoteric. It doesn't take much of a mind to break through and understand it. Always been known, tremendous sciences. Remember that Plato talks about perhaps the need to license musicians because of the effects they could have, especially on the minds of the young. And he didn't dream that up because we already find it in much, much older writers. Well understood, again, back to the muses and back to Huxley's Brave New World Revisited. He says here on page 88, A tune will haunt the memory during the whole of a lifetime. Here, for example, is a quite uninteresting statement or value judgment. As it stands, nobody will pay attention to it, but now set the words to a catchy and easily remembered tune. Immediately they become words of power. Moreover, the words will tend automatically to repeat themselves every time the melody is heard or spontaneously remembered. Orpheus has entered into an alliance with Pavlov, the power of sound with the conditioned reflex. For the commercial propagandist, as for his colleagues in the fields of politics and religion, music possesses yet another advantage, nonsense which it would be shameful for a reasonable being to write, speak, or hear spoken, can be sung or listened to by that same rational being with pleasure and even with a kind of intellectual conviction. Can we learn to separate the pleasure of singing or of listening to song from the all-too-human tendency to believe in the propaganda which the song is putting over? That, again, is the question. Now listen to this. Thanks to compulsory education, that's why they had to standardize and centralize everything something that Marx talked about and all countries followed his advice that is centralize everything including a national educational system which would be part of an international educational association for a standardized world thanks to compulsory education and the rotary press the rotary press is a bit old fashioned now but I think it still goes that way it's more lethal web offset the propagandist has been able for many years past to convey his messages to virtually every adult in every civilized country. Today, thanks to radio and television, 
he's in the happy position of being able to communicate even with unschooled adults and not yet literate children. Children, as might be expected, are highly susceptible to propaganda. They are ignorant of the world and its ways, and therefore completely unsuspecting. Their critical faculties are underdeveloped. The youngest of them have not the youngest of them have not yet reached the age of reason, and the older ones lack the experience on which their newfound rationality can effectively work. In Europe, conscripts used to be playfully referred to as cannon fodder. The little brothers and sisters have now become radio fodder and television fodder. In my childhood we were taught to sing nursery rhymes and in pious households hymns. Today the little ones warble the singing commercials. Which is better, Rheingold is my beer, the dry beer, or hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, abide with me, or you'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Who knows? I don't say that children should be forced to harass their parents into buying products they've seen advertised on television, but at the same time, I cannot close my eyes to the fact that it's being done every day. So writes the star of one of the many programs beamed to a juvenile audience, children, he adds, are living, talking records of what we tell them every day. Now this is something very important because after the French Revolution and during the French Revolution they tried in some areas of France to instill or instigate or create the Plato Republican ideal of taking children separated from parents and the state bringing them up. They did experiments back then in the 1700s, late 1700s with it into the 1800s in some other countries. Bertrand Russell was an advocate of this initially, as were all the elitists of all the Western countries, because all the elitists belonged to the same families, regardless of the countries they were born into. And they wanted this Plato-type Republican world where they dominate as the guardian class. But they called as early as the 1700s now, and in, into the 1800s, the parental influence over their children, passing information or ideas or morals or histories into their children, they called it contamination. And they said that to get a perfect society started, they'd have to separate the children from the adults. And the state would bring them up. And sure enough, we find that some of the big players, like Bertrand Russell, were given authority to try experimental boarding-type schools where the children, including some that they brought from orphanages had never met their parents, didn't know who they were, would come to love Big Brother because the state would be, be Big Brother. They even said they would have an advanced military eventually because if they could do that, then the state would bring up the children as Big Brother and the children would see the military them itself as the epitome of the state, the power and the might of the state, as in fact uh, does the police force the same thing. They always project themselves as being somehow the ultimate good authority for the good of the state. And so they'd be perfect, perfect workers for a totalitarian type system. But then later on, 
when they were doing that experiment and sharing their information with the Soviet Union, which was another type of laboratory where they'd really tried that, they found that they could just as easily get the, the parents to part with their children through kindergarten. They promote kindergarten and daycare. And through scientific indoctrination, even for two or three hours per day, that would render the parental influence on the children when they got home at night insignificant. It wouldn't take with the children because the scientific indoctrination would overpower it. Well, that's happened. And that's why uh, we find that daycare was heavily promoted by all Western powers to bring in this system. And it actually works. Not only that, they separated and altered the ways of doing mathematics, long division and all this kind of stuff. They do it every 10, 15 years because they don't want the child being helped by the parent with their homework. This makes the child think that the parents are stupid. They don't understand the, the, the new methods. Only the teacher and the teacher's particular class understand them, so they identify with the teachers and not with the parents. This was all deliberate. Getting back to Brave New World Revisited, page 89, continuing. It says, In due course, these living, talking records of television commercials will grow up, earn money, and buy the products of industry. Think, writes Mr. Clyde Miller ecstatically, Think of what it can mean to your firm and profits if you can condition as million or ten million children who will grow up into adults trained to buy your product as soldiers are trained in advance when they hear the trigger words forward march. Yes, just think of it. And at the same time remember that the dictators and the would-be dictators have been thinking about this sort of thing for years and that millions, tens of millions hundreds of millions of children are in the process of growing up to buy the local despot's ideological product and like well-trained soldiers to respond with appropriate behavior to the trigger words implanted in those young minds by the despot's propagandists. Which makes me always think of Orwell's freedom is slavery and all the other slogans that he knew would be used eventually when everything becomes so mismatched and, and mashed up, we can't really differentiate and reason for ourselves the difference in the wording. Freedom is slavery. War is peace. Peace is war. This is where we are today. Everything is done under the guise of security. As you go into an information straitjacket where you have no freedom of privacy whatsoever, all for your own safety. We're, we're here, we're right there, in fact, it's happened. And they're pushing forward to then this next part of the scientific type dictatorship that's to be worldwide. And most sheeple, you'll notice, are so conditioned, they're quite happy with it, they don't really care. When you don't care about such changes, it means that your ability for self-preservation has been damaged or negated or blocked or destroyed because every wild creature on its roots around fields and forests will stop where there's any change in its root even the tree fallen anything at all that's different 
and observe and scout around before it carries on, because these things are necessary for survival. Today we are sprayed from the air, and we have been for ten years continuously. Before that it was sporadic, as it tested stuff on us, but continuously for ten years, and the majority of the public won't even look up to see it, even if you tell them. Brzezinski said it, quite honestly, Shortly the public will be unable to reason for themselves. They'll leave it to the media to do it for them. In other words, if there's anything worth knowing that they should know, they expect this media, this private organization, to tell them. Back to page 90 in this book. Self-government is an Inverse ratio to numbers. The larger the constituency, the less value of any particular vote. Now remember, this man belonged to the elite that planned the the unified European Union. They planned the unified Americas. They planned the Pacific Rim conglomerate. They planned the eventual UN takeover of it. And he's admitting something because when power is moved from your local base, even your local area, to somewhere much more distant, you have no say in anything. There's no recourse. There's nothing. There's no address to anything. You can't get addressed. And here he is admitting it. Self-government is an inverse ratio to numbers. The larger the constituency, the less value of any particular vote. When he is merely one of millions, the individual elector feels himself to be impotent, a negligible quantity. The candidates he has voted into office are far away at the top of the pyramid of power. Theoretically, they are the servants of the people, but in fact, in fact, it is the servants who give orders, and the people far off at the base of the great pyramid (laughs) who must obey. Increasing population and advancing technology have resulted in an increase in the number and complexity of organizations, an increase in the amounts of power concentrated in the hands of officials, and a corresponding decrease in the amount of control exercised by electors, coupled with a decrease in the public's regard for democratic procedures. Already weakened by the vast impersonal forces at work in the modern world, democratic institutions are now being undermined from within by the politicians and their propagandists. What he doesn't mention there is the fact that that MI6 and the CIA and all the other organizations that are all combined and have been from all the other countries for a long time, since World War II definitely, are running the whole show. And and also the foundations, the big foundations, which Albert Pike talked about setting up, that would gain tremendous power and influence and run what would appear to be non-governmental organizations for charitable goods uh, works and for for the betterment of humanity. Well, you better understand when you hear something like the betterment of humanity, you better understand what they mean by that. What they, what, what, what's their view of the betterment of humanity? There are many ways to see something, and we always take the one that's least offensive to our sensibilities. And what Huxley also knew is that these politicians at the top are all picked 
by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Since he mixed with them all and was a member himself. He goes on to say here, in Brave New World Revisited, Human beings act in a great variety of irrational ways, but all of them seem to be capable, if given a fair chance, of making a reasonable choice in the light of available evidence. Democratic institutions can be made to work only if all concerned do their best to impart knowledge and to encourage rationality. But today, in the world's most powerful democracy, the politicians and their propagandists prefer to make nonsense of the democratic procedures by appealing almost exclusively to the ignorance and irrationality of the electors. Both parties, we were told in 1956 by the editor of a leading business journal, will merchandise their candidates and issues by the same methods that business has developed to sell goods. These include scientific selection of appeals and planned repetition. Repetition, very important. Radio spot announcements and ads will repeat phrases with a planned intensity. Billboards will push slogans of proven power. Candidates need, in addition to rich voices and good diction, to be able to lock sincere or to look sincerely at the TV camera, like Bill Clinton did when he says, "You know what?" Didn't blink. The political merchandisers appeal only to the weaknesses of voters, never to their potential strength. They make no attempt to educate the masses into becoming fit for self-government. They're content merely to manipulate and exploit them. For this purpose, all the resources of psychology and the social sciences are mobilized and set to work. Carefully selected samples of the electorate are given interviews in depth. These interviews in depth reveal the unconscious fears and wishes most prevalent in a given society at the time of an election. Phrases and images aimed at allaying or, if necessary, enhancing these fears, at satisfying these wishes, at least symbolically, are then chosen by the experts, tried out on readers and audiences, changed or improved in the light of the information thus obtained, after which the political campaign is ready for the mass communicators. All that is now needed is money and a candidate who can be coached to look sincere. Under the new dispensation, political principles and plans for specific action have come to lose most of their importance. The personality of the candidate and the way he is projected by the advertising experts are the things that really matter. In one way or another, as vigorous he-man or kindly father, the candidate must be glamorous. He must also be an entertainer who never bores his audience. Inured to television and radio, that audience is accustomed to being distracted and does not like to be asked to concentrate or make a prolonged intellectual effort. All speeches by the entertainer-candidate must therefore be short and snappy. The great issues of the day must be dealt with in five minutes at most, and preferably since the audience will be eager to pass on to something a little livelier than inflation or the H-bomb in 60 seconds flat. The nature of oratory is such 
that there has always been a tendency among politicians and clergymen to oversimplify complex issues. From a pulpit or a platform, even the most conscientious of speakers finds it very difficult to tell the whole truth. The methods now being used to merchandise the political candidate as though he were a deodorant positively guarantee the electorate against ever hearing the truth about anything. And ain't that the truth? Because where is the big debates uh, during election time about NAFTA or GATT and all the other treaties that integrate, amalgamate and alter the entire structure and system within which you live? It's never discussed what they go for are the fears, the pensions, the health care system, and that kind of thing. Welfare, unemployment, insurance. The things that everyone is terrified of. Unemployment, sickness, and so on. That's what they go for. It's proven, it's standardized. And it doesn't matter because, like Professor Carl Quigley said, it's not important to have all the politicians belonging to the Council on Foreign Relations or the British one, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. It's only important that you have the top cabinet in your pocket. And that's what they have, because after all, they're the bosses. The lesser politicians know how to play the game, cause no waves, and they, 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 they flap their fins like trained seals in a circus when the party boss talks. So you just have to own the party boss and the advisors to run the whole country. Very simple. And now, in chapter 7, I'm going to read some of the material that really interested Aldo Huxley and others of his ilk, because that was their speciality. Mind control and brainwashing. He goes on to say, in the two preceding chapters I have described the techniques of what may be called wholesale mind manipulation as practiced by the greatest demagogue and the most successful salesman in recorded history. But no human problem can be solved by wholesale methods alone. The shotgun has its place, but so has the hypodermic syringe. In the chapters that follow, I shall describe some of the more effective techniques for manipulating not crowds, not entire publics, but isolated individuals. In the course of his epoch-making experiments on the conditioned reflex, Ivan Pavlov, oh Pavlov, boy I'll tell you, this guy was a psychopath par excellence, uh, and a hero to these guys, to all these psychologists. Ivan Pavlov observed that when subjugated to prolonged physical or psychic stress, laboratory animals exhibit all the symptoms of a nervous breakdown. Refusing to cope any longer with intolerable situation, their brains go on strike, so to speak, and either stop working altogether, the dog loses consciousness, or else resorts to slowdowns and sabotage. The dog behaves unrealistically, or develops the kind of physical symptoms which, in a human being, we would call hysterical. Some animals are more resistant to stress than others. Dogs possessing what Pavlov called a strong excitatory constitution 
break down much more quickly than dogs of a merely lively as opposed to a choleric or agitated temperament. Similarly, weak inhibitory dogs reach the end of their tether much sooner than do calm, imperturbable dogs. But even the most stoical dog is unable to resist indefinitely. If the stress to which he is subjugated is sufficiently intense or sufficiently prolonged, he will end by breaking down as abjectly and as completely as the weakest of his kind. Pavlov's findings were confirmed in the most distressing manner and on a very large scale during the two world wars as the result of a single catastrophic experience or of a succession of terrors less appalling but frequently repeated, soldiers develop a number of disabling psychophysical symptoms. Temporary unconsciousness, extreme agitation, lethargy, functional blindness or paralysis, completely unrealistic responses to the challenge of events, strange reversals of lifelong patterns of behavior, all the symptoms which Pavlov observed in his dogs, reappeared among the victims of what in the First World War was called shell shock, in the second, battle fatigue. Every man, like every dog, has his own individual limit of endurance. This is a, a tremendous subject to the people who run the world, remember, because they must know how everyone ticks and how to break you, how to condition you to you. So you'll love Big, big Brother eventually, you'll love the Master. Most men reach the limits after about 30 days or of more or less continuous stress under the conditions of modern combat. The more than averagely susceptible succumb in only 15 days. The more than average tough can resist for 45 or even 50 days. Strong or weak in the long run, all of them break down. All that is to say of those who are initially sane. Isn't this interesting, this part? For ironically enough, the only people who can hold up indefinitely under the stress of modern war are psychotics. Individual insanity is immune to the consequences of collective insanity. Isn't this amazing? It's, it's, it's incredibly ancient, this Babylonian um, in its understanding of the human mind. Because he admits it right in the open, uh, it's even in the Talmud, I think, individual insanity is immune to the consequences of collective insanity. And that's what war is. All this harrying and ya 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 and waving flags and stuff is collective insanity. More so because the public are quite content with the, the pithy excuses they're given for the wars as the boys in the banks fill up their coffers and add all the zeros behind the figures, the numbers that they're going to collect during the debt or from the debt that's, that's made from the wars. The fact that every individual has his breaking point has been known and, in a crude, unscientific way, exploited from time immemorial. In some cases, man's dreadful inhumanity to man has been inspired by the love of cruelty for its own horrible and fascinating sake. The, this is the sadomasochistic personality again. They, they worship those more powerful than themselves, give complete allegiance, but they despise the weak ones beneath them. More often, however, pure sadism was tempered by utilitarianism, theology or reasons of state. 
physical torture and other forms of stress were inflicted by lawyers in order to loosen the tongues of reluctant witnesses, by clergymen in order to punish the unorthodox and induce them to change their opinions, by secret police to extract confessions from persons suspected of being hostile to the government. Under Hitler, torture followed by mass extermination was used on those biological heretics, the Jews, For a young Nazi, a tour of duty in the extermination camp was, in Himmler's words, the best indoctrination on inferior beings and the subhuman races. Given the obsessional quality of the anti-Semitism which Hitler picked up as a young man in the slums of Vienna, this revival of the methods employed by the Holy Office against heretics and witches was inevitable but in the light of the findings of Pavlov and of the knowledge gained by psychiatrists in the treatment of war neurosis, it seems a hideous and grotesque anachronism. Stress is amply sufficient to cause a complete cerebral breakdown can be induced by methods which, though hatefully inhumane, or inhuman, he says here, fall short of physical torture. Whatever may have happened in earlier years, it seems fairly certain that torture is not extensively used by the communist police today. Well, of course, Huxley and all the big boys that worked for MI5 and 6 had to cover for their Soviet experimental bosses over on the other side there because they were all working together. And there was no real Cold War. It was all laboratory experimentation. And the best laboratory is a totalitarian state. He goes on to say, they draw their inspiration not from the the inquisitor or the SS man, but from the physiologist and his methodically conditioned laboratory animals. For the dictator and his policemen, Pavlov's finding have important practical implications. If the central nervous system of dogs can be broken down, so can the central nervous system of political prisoners. It is simply a matter of applying the right amount of stress for the right length of time. At the end of the treatment, the prisoner will be in a state of neurosis or hysteria and will be ready to confess whatever, whatever, remember, his captors want him to confess. And that's what you saw or read in George Orwell's 1984. What the intelligent and practical dictator needs is not a patient to be institutionalized or a victim to be shot, but a convert who will work for the cause. Turning once again to Pavlov, he learns that on their way to the point of final breakdown, dogs become more than normally suggestible. This is to be applied to humans, remember. New behavior patterns can easily be installed while the dog is at or near the limit of its cerebral endurance, and these new behavior patterns seem to be ineradicable. The animal in which they have been implanted cannot be deconditioned. That's interesting, eh? In other words, these new patterns that you put into the animal, the animal in which they have been implanted cannot be deconditioned. That which it has learned under stress will remain an integral part of its makeup. Now that's why you find these old fogies that they call veterans that line up in war memorial days with their little caps on and their blazers that they get 
and to, they wear and they march or they they, 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 they toddle really some of them almost fall and they're so proud of what they did and if you ask them about the war they can only repeat the propaganda that was given at that particular stressful period in their young lives they haven't gone beyond it they haven't gone into any other information uh, in later years they can only repeat the indoctrination that was given them under stress and that was further intensified by the propaganda they received from their commanding officers and through their bulletins and so on during that stressful period. That's why that works that way. Psychological stresses can be produced in many ways. Dogs become disturbed when stimuli are unusually strong, when the interval between a stimulus and the customary response is unduly prolonged and the animal is left in a state of suspense. When the brain is confused by stimuli that run counter to what the dog has learned to expect, when stimuli make no sense within the victim's established frame of reference, furthermore, it has been found that the deliberate introduction of fear, rage, or anxiety markedly heightens the dog's suggestibility. That's why we're getting all this hype today about terror, terror everywhere, and not a drop to be seen. If these emotions are kept at a high pitch of intensity for a long enough time, the brain goes on strike. And that's what you're seeing with the people today of the Western world, as they hype up the terror that we don't see happening, except we hear it all the time, and we see guys on television or newscasts running around with machine guns dressed in black gear to protect us, very ominous-looking people, then that scares the hell out of us, you see. And we comply, but eventually we get so used to it, we want to shut down, we want to turn on something that's that's fun. So we watch a movie or a soap or whatever the, you watch to escape. And and that's why that works. We, we stop, we stop. And as that happens, they can go the next step with terror and the next step with taking your rights away. This is all planned this way. See, there's nothing that's happening today that wasn't planned and understood 50 to 100 years ago. And it did take time to plan all of this. If these emotions are kept at a high pitch of intensity for a long enough time, the brain goes on strike. When this happens, new behavior patterns may be installed with the greatest of ease. They can make you go totally cashless. They can make you carry ID cards. They can make you do things and sign for everything and verify everything and give your whole life story out to everybody who demands it. And you'll do it, you see. That's what's happening today. Among the physical stresses that increase a dog's suggestibility are fatigue, wounds, and every form of sickness. For the would-be dictator, these findings possess important practical implications. They prove, for example, that Hitler was quite right in maintaining that mass meetings at night were more effective than mass meetings in the daytime. During the day, he wrote, man's willpower revolts with highest energy against any attempt at being forced under another's will and another's opinion. In the evening, however, they succumb more easily to the dominating force of a stronger will. And that's why, when I was young, the news came on at 6 p.m. 
and that's all you got was the news. You didn't get sports and all trivia mixed with horror. You got the basic propagandist news, and that's all it was. It was very authoritarian, and that's how it was presented by the BBC. But as they progressed with the system, the news got later and later, 10 or even 11 p.m., when that that semi-sleepy state, you're more suggestible, you're open to the conditioning. And most people, once it starts, because there's always fear involved, and you always think, I better know what, what the fear is all about, you'll stay there till it's finished, and you're being propagandized in a, in a hypnotic state. Old stuff, they knew this years ago. Pavlov would have had agreed with, agreed with him. Fatigue increases suggestibility. That is why, among other reasons, the commercial sponsors of television programs prefer the evening hours and are ready to back their preferences with hard cash. Illness is even more effective than fatigue as an intensifier of suggestibility. In the past, sick rooms were the scene of countless religious conversions. The scientifically trained dictator of the future will have developed all the hospitals in his dominions wired for sound and equipped with pillow speakers. Canned persuasion will be on the air 24 hours a day, and the more important patients will be visited by political soul-savers and mind-changers, just as in the past their ancestors were visited by priests, nuns and pious laymen. So there you go. Uh, it's also easy to make everyone sick if you spray them every day and night. No one's totally awake or fit or healthy. You all feel rather tired all the time. Good time to indoctrinate you. The fact that strong negative emotions tend to heighten suggestibility and so facilitate a change of heart has been observed and exploited long before the days of Pavlov. As Dr. William Sargent has pointed out in his enlightening book, Battle for the Mind, there must be, by the way, Battle for the Mind. John Wesley's enormous success as a preacher was based upon an intuitive understanding of the central nervous system. He would open his sermon with a long and detailed description of the torments to which, unless they underwent conversion, his hearers would undoubtedly be condemned for all eternity. That's all hellfire and brimstone. Then when terror and an agonizing sense of guilt had brought his audience to the verge, or in some cases over the verge of a complete cerebral breakdown, he would change his tone and promise salvation to those who believed and repented. By this kind of preaching, Wesley converted thousands of men, women, and children. Intense prolonged fear broke them down and produced a state of greatly intensified suggestibility. In this state, they were able to accept the preacher's theological pronouncements without question, after which they were reintegrated by words of comfort and emerged from their ordeal with new and generally better behavior patterns ineradicably implanted in their minds and nervous systems. The effectiveness of political and religious propaganda depends upon the methods employed, not upon the doctrines taught. These doctrines may be true or false, wholesome or pernicious. It makes little or no difference. If the indoctrination is given in the right way, at the proper stage of nervous exhaustion, it will work. Under favorable conditions, 
practically everybody can be converted to practically anything. And now we're going into the area of Guantanamo Bay where they're doing the same techniques on the supposed suspected terrorists. This is page 104 of Brave New World, revisited by Aldo Huxley. He says, We possess detailed descriptions of the methods used by communist police for dealing with political prisoners. Of course they did, because they'd used that in Britain too, even during World War II. From the moment he is taken into custody, the victim is subjected systematically to many kinds of physical and psychological stress. He's badly fed, he is made extremely uncomfortable, he's not allowed to sleep for more than a few hours each night. And all the time he is kept in a state of suspension, uncertainty and acute apprehension. Day after day, or rather night after night, for these Pavlovian policemen understand the value of fatigue as an intensifier of suggestibility. The fear itself, remember, is an intensifier. Many things are intensifiers, but fatigue is a tremendous intensifier of suggestibility. He is questioned, often for many hours at a stretch, by interrogators who do their best to frighten, confuse, and bewilder him. You know, good cop, bad cop, and all that kind of stuff. After a few weeks or months of such treatment, his brain goes on strike, and he confesses to whatever it is that his captors want him to confess. Then, if he is to be converted rather than shot, he is offered the comfort of hope. If he will but accept the true faith, he can yet be saved. Not, of course, in the next life, for officially there is no next life, but in this life. Similar but rather drastic methods were used during the Korean War on military prisoners. In their Chinese camps, the young Western captives were systematically subjected to stress. Thus, for the most trivial breaches of the rules, offenders would be summoned to the commandant's or the commandant's office, there to be questioned, browbeaten, and publicly humiliated, and the process would be repeated again and again at any hour of the day or night. This continuous harassment produced in its victims a sense of bewilderment and chronic anxiety. They call it depersonalization. It's, it's a tremendous method which they use. There are some good movies out there on that too. One of them is made in Germany. It's called The Experiment, well worth seeing. This continuous harassment produced in its victims a sense of bewilderment and chronic anxiety. To intensify their sense of guilt, prisoners were made to write and rewrite in ever more intimate detail long autobiographical accounts of their shortcomings. And after having confessed their own sins, they were required to confess the sins of their companions. The aim was to create within the camp a nightmarish society in which everybody was spying on, now listen to this, everyone was spying on and informing against everyone else. Now we've gone all the way from Neighbourhood Watch, which is pretty well the whole Western Hemisphere wide, and we've got tips, and now we've got citizens on patrol, cops, 
and all these different organizations where everyone's snitching on everyone else. See, it's all been set up this way, and they used the Soviet system as a model. That's what it really was. It was an experimental laboratory and a model for, for even a more sophisticated form to be used in the future, which is now here. To intensify their sense of guilt, prisoners were made to write and rewrite in every more detail, long autographical accounts of shortcomings, and blah, 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 and then to confess the sins of companions. The aim was to create within the camp a nightmarish society in which everybody was spying on and informing against everyone else. To these mental stresses were added the physical stresses of malnutrition, discomfort, and illness. Now, you look at all the obese people today, they're walking around, and those people are mainly malnourished. That's why they eat so much. They're eating fast foods where all the goodness is taken out of it, removed all the processed foods. So their body is always craving uh, vitamins and minerals and various proteins and so on. And they're not getting it. So they can be obese and still malnourished. So think about things. It all depends on how you stand outside the world and perceive things. There are many ways to get to a goal that most folk will never catch on to. The increased suggestibility thus induced was skillfully exploited by the Chinese who poured into these abnormally receptive minds large doses of pro-communist and anti-capitalist literature. These Pavlovian techniques were remarkably successful. One out of every seven American prisoners was guilty we are officially told of grave collaboration with the Chinese authorities, one out of three of technical collaboration. It must not be supposed that this kind of treatment is reserved by the communists exclusively for their enemies. The young field workers, whose business it was during the first years of the new regime to act as communist missionaries and organizers in China's Innumerable towns and villages were made to take a course of indoctrination far more intense than that to which any prisoner of war was ever subjected. In his book, China Under Communism, R. L. Walker describes the methods by which the party leaders are able to fabricate out of ordinary men and women the thousands of selfless fanatics required for spreading the communist gospel and for enforcing communist policies. That's an excellent book on how the young in any country can be conditioned to be a new type of police, and that they're fanatical in their devotion. Under this system of training, the human raw material is shipped to special camps where the trainees are completely isolated from their friends, families, and the outside world in general. In these camps, they are made to perform exhausting physical and mental work. They are never alone, always in groups. They are encouraged to spy on one another. They are required to write self-accusatory autobiographies. They live in chronic fear of the dreadful fate that may befall them on account of what has been said about them by informers or of what they themselves have confessed. Now, the U.S. and other countries did the same thing with cults that were CIA-sponsored, the whole Jonestown massacre, go into the history of, of Jones himself, and you'll find that Ronald Reagan actually uh, brought him in when he was governor of California. He brought in Jones and his groups to work with psychiatric patients, and the whole thing was CIA-backed with the same techniques used, the malnourishment, the fatigue, the spying on each other, and so on. 
These were all CIA ops. In this state of heightened suggestibility, they are given an intensive course in theoretical and applied Marxism, a course in which failure to pass examinations may mean anything from ignominious expulsion to a term in a forced labor camp or even liquidation. After about six months of this kind of thing, prolonged mental and physical stress produced results which Pavlov's findings would lead one to expect. One after another, or in whole groups, the trainees break down. Neurotic and hysterical symptoms make their appearance. Some of the victims commit suicide. Others, as many, we are told, as 20% of the total develop a severe mental illness. Those who survive the rigors of the conversion process emerge with new and eradicable behavior patterns. All their ties with the past, friends, family, and traditional decencies and pieties have been severed. They are new men, recreated in the image of their new God, and totally dedicated to his service. Throughout the communist world, tens of thousands of these disciplined and devoted young men are being turned out every year from hundreds of conditioning centers. What the Jesuits did for the Roman Church of the Counter-Reformation, these products of a more scientific and even harsher training are now doing and will doubtless continue to do for the communist parties of Europe, Asia and Africa. In politics, Pavlov seems to have been an old-fashioned liberal, but by a strange irony of fate, his researches and the theories he based upon them have called into existence a great army of fanatics dedicated heart and soul, reflex and nervous system to the destruction of old-fashioned liberalism, wherever it can be found. Brainwashing, as it is now practiced, is a hybrid technique depending for its effectiveness partly on the systematic use of violence, partly on skill for psychological manipulation. It represents the tradition of 1984 on its way to becoming the tradition of Brave New World. Under a long-established and well-regulated dictatorship, our current methods of semi-violent manipulation will seem, no doubt, absurdly crude conditioned from earliest infancy and perhaps also biologically predestined, the average middle or lower caste individual will never require conversion or even a refresher course in the true faith. Listen to this stuff. The members of the highest caste will have to be able to think new thoughts in response to new situations. Consequently, their training will be much less rigid than the training imposed upon those whose business is not to reason why, that's the masses, but merely to do and die with a minimum of fuss. Now that's right out of Plato, in fact. Plato talked about the guardians, the elite aristocracy, who would have access to all information and histories and education, where those below the its wouldn't have to know that. They'd be kept, they'd be taught, taught all that they really needed to know for their particular occupation. So he's telling you that here. And this guy, remember, is part, was part of the, the investigations into these techniques to create a world society. And he's admitting here that what we're going through today, which is the 1984 part of it, is only one step 
the next step is the introduction, which we see happening simultaneously. It's coming in now, the genetic engineering for a new type of lower caste humans that will work perfectly well. The Brave New World variety. And I'll repeat that last part. Conditioned from earliest infancy and perhaps also biologically predestined, the average middle or lower caste individual will never require conversion or even a refresher course in the true faith. The members of the highest caste will have to be able to think new thoughts in response to new situations. And that's again what people like Charles Galton Darwin talks about in his book, The Next Million Years. The elite will not alter themselves. They'll damage our ability for self-preservation. They'll annihilate that part of the brain chemically or even through the use of viruses, it's really inoculations, so that you won't need it anymore. The, the, the state will be making all your decisions for you. But the elite must keep those abilities because they will be guiding us, guiding planet Earth, you see. These upper caste individuals will be members still of a wild species. The trainers and guardians even uses the term themselves only slightly conditioned of a vast herd of completely domesticated animals. Moo! That's us, folks. Their wellness will make it possible for them to become heretical and rebellious. When this happens, they will have to be either liquidated, that's the elite themselves who become, because they will all be competing amongst themselves, like good little psychopaths, for the throne, you know, the world throne, or brainwashed back into orthodoxy, or, as in Brave New World, exiled to some island where they can give no further trouble, except, of course, to one another. But universal infant conditioning and the other techniques of manipulation and control are still a few generations away in the future. It's all here now. It's been done since then. On the road to the brave new world, our rulers will have to rely on the traditional and provisional techniques of brainwashing. Good book. And remember, this guy was part of it, who was all for it. He saw himself as one of those who would retain his critical faculties of reasoning. He would not be altered, and he, he was in the actual aristocratic class. His grandfather, Sir Thomas Huxley, uh, was the man who was the best friend of Charles Darwin and took over this Masonic theory of the elite that became Nazism and Communism, and all other extremist groups, religion basically. Sir Thomas also recruited others like H.G. Wells and taught all the main authors of his era and backed them financially. They were all indoctrinated into this cause. Just as the guardians in Plato's Republic said they'd do, they'd recruit those who were on the verge or the lower class or the middle class and bring them into the lower helping class. And that's what H.G. Wells was. H.G. Wells' mother was, was really uh, the housekeeper of uh, an aristocratic family. So he was born to a servant, which he hated. And he hated the lower classes because he was accustomed to living in, in the big mansion. But he didn't own it. But he hated all the lower classes because it terrified him that he might join those particular working classes one day. It's quite fascinating when you realize 
that your whole life really and everything you're taught to be fascinated by has been methodically planned for you to believe in or accept. Including the daily fanfare of politics and all that nonsense. For as I say, Professor Carl Quigley said that, that the bottom politicians are allowed to do their haw-hawing, they're jeering towards each other as they all vie for a little bit of power, a bit of the honeypot where all the tax money is, that's all they're really in for. Some fame and fortune, as good little psychopaths do. But the ones at the top are already picked and groomed years before the public even hear of their names. That's all true. Now, it's interesting, too, that last chapter I read by Aldo Huxley, he talks along the lines of Plato's Republic, the utopia for the elite is what it's all about. And what he's describing there are the psychopaths at the top. Now, you see, it's only those who are normal people that would even use the term psychopath. For the psychopath at the top, they see themselves as Darwin's natural successors. They are the epitome of the survivalist. They are those who have proven worthy through all the trials and stresses of thousands of years even and selective breeding to dominate all the the animals, as they call the people, or the its, as Plato called them. Nothing has changed. So it's only normal people who would view them, and the Huxley and his crowd as well, as a psychopathic type, they themselves see themselves as the winners. They're at the top of the food chain. They have dominated all the rest. So there's a different perspective there. They think they are quite natural, and they have the right to be where they are. They're, they're bright. They have power, tremendous power. They own the system. Today we live in an amalgamated system of economics and politics, the old warlords fused with the bankers a long time ago to dominate the rest because all those that produce are the common people. They are the producers. So you have the ones at the top living off of them. That's what Marx talked about. Marx knew because he was trained by them as well and given all his data. As was Lenin, in fact. The bankers paid for all these things. I'll be reading from other books by other professors going through who backed Hitler and who backed Bolshevism and the communists. All documented. But to the average person today, you see they're almost in Brave New World. In Brave New World, they pop pills for everything, had little electric stimuli, etc., for orgasms and so on and so on. Be happy, be happy, be happy. Don't be sad. Sadness is, is a, an unnatural state of mind. That's the new slogan that we hear all the time, be happy, be happy, where it's nonsense because sadness is a state. It's not an illness, it's a state of mind, uh, although psychiatrists would love to classify it as a, an actual illness. Anything outside the agenda now has the psychiatric terminology, as do all the little things that children go through. Lots of different terms now for children to be slapped with, so they can put on drugs. They're already doing this Brave New World scenario. It's been happening for years, and the public are kept in ignorance 
and they're taught to be egocentric all of the time, uh, go along with it uh, uncaringly. In fact, the bonding, the natural bonding between peoples, not just male and female, but between all peoples and societies, is pretty well gone. And that was by design. And I think there's more to it. I think there's biophysical effects caused uh, by the food alterations, the spraying and inoculations. I think it's all designed that way. Because we would never have survived this long if society had been in the state it's in right now with the debonding process, the hedonistic process that's underway today. We'd never have got out the caves if indeed we even started there. Because survival is also a societal thing, not just an individual thing. We have lost that. And when you lose it, you're domesticated, as Huxley himself says. Now, I'd like to mention, for those who have sent donations in, I really appreciate it because I don't get paid for any of the radio or television shows. I do, never have. I haven't got a penny from any show. And I live on what comes in, which isn't a lot. And what I do find is, is that those who do donate are the same people over and over, a small handful of people. But I really appreciate it. And I am run off my feet this last little while. Um, I've had problems with my eyes. Uh, forgive any mistakes tonight in the reading because it's hard to even focus at the moment. And hard to get glasses to, reading glasses to actually read properly with at the moment. So I'm, I'm sure you'll forgive me for that. And I will be continuing with the blurbs. I will be continuing uh, to expose through published information. And it's sad that we need this proof because people should be able to see for themselves. Even the spraying overhead, most can't, you know. We shouldn't have to be told so much. Understand we've got to have the proof. But remember that those in charge of the, the hen house or the foxes and they're the ones who give us any proof or not give us a proof, depending on how they feel at the time. So I can't spend my life just handing out the proofs and the data, which they themselves have authorized to be known for those who seek it out. We're supposed to use our intuition, which is a defense mechanism, a survival mechanism. And unfortunately, it's gone with most people who truly have been domesticated and can't imagine any other lifestyle than the present one they have. Just as they can't imagine the great-grandparents' lifestyle and the way they lived, and they can't imagine the lifestyle of the genetically modified, purpose-made humans of the next 40 or 50 years. They can't imagine. They're quite happy uh, in this particular domesticated field they're in today. They're domesticated animals in their own field. This is their home, their habitat. Even as it's changing, and they don't complain anymore about gasoline increases or the cost of living that's going up all the time. They don't complain because they, they're given so much cheap junk to reward themselves with. In the Pavlovian style, again, pull the lever and the rat gets its seed, and we reward ourselves with the little goodies of life that amuses and amuses for about five minutes until the next one comes along. That's how we have been reared, trained, 
and conditioned. All the greater things of life that comes from the mind, the journey of the mind itself. Forget television, forget all the entertainment out there. You have a whole universe to research within your own mind space, and most people leave it vacant, and that's tremendously sad. For Hamish and myself up here in Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you. I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. Oh, I could tell you why the ocean's near the shore. I could think of things I never thought before. And then I'd sit and think some more. I would not be just a nothing. My head all full of stuffing, my heart all full of pain. I would dance and be merry, like be a ding a dairy if I only had a brain. Oh!